Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, a great pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who has made his mark in the wonderful sport of golf. He's been a great ambassador for Australia both here and overseas throughout his career. His name is Nick O'Hearn, and he joins me in the studio. Nick, good to see you. Good to see you, Peter. Thanks for having us. Uh, welcome back home, first of all. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be back in Australia. Um, I've been in the US for 12 years now, and it was it was certainly time to come home. We've been thinking about it for a few years, and it's just awesome to be back. I'm loving the coffee, the food, the wine, a bit of everything. <laughs> so you missed a lot of things about home. What was the thing that you probably missed the most, do you think? Oh, probably the... You know, it, it's more where I was living. I was in Florida, in Orlando, and we were in one of those gated communities. And in the mornings, you just miss the sounds of the birds and the mm. kids playing sport across the road. And, and we're living just in Sandringham at the moment. And to wake up on the weekend and to hear all those familiar noises that you used to growing up, it's just magical. And it's just the little things like that. I think I'm right in saying you're a Dockers fan. So did you <laughs> keep an eye on the footy while you spent all that time in the States? I did, yeah. I sort of followed them off and on, um, you know, when my schedule allowed. Um, I wasn't an avid follower like a lot of the golfers over there, but I always kept my eye on. And now that I'm back, um, I'm hoping to get a you know a little bit more involved again. And uh, funnily enough, I had a game of golf with a couple of Hawks players the other day. Oh yeah, uh, Liam Shields and uh, Jack Gunston. Are we, you know, just great blokes, and it's amazing how many other. How many of the football players love their golf? So I'm um, going to have some fun times when I'm back. I think Jack hits it okay, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's uh, six marker, yeah. I believe. I think he might be at uh, Huntingdale or is it Riversdale? I know Liam and Jack, they're both uh, at, at those courses. But uh, yeah, they can both, but both are very handy handy with the, uh, with the sticks and, and they got it around nicely. Speaking of coming back home, obviously Florida and the States in general has a lot of wonderful golf courses, but you down at Sandringham. And within a few kilometres in every direction that you look, there are these magnificent golf courses, Royal Melbourne, just up the road. We are blessed in this state, aren't we? It's a golfing mecca. And, and almost sometimes I think people don't realise how good they have it. I mean, I've, I've been all over the world, played a lot of golf courses. And, and when I was back, uh, when I first came back, I've, I've actually joined Woodlands because uh, that's reciprocal with my club in Perth, where I'm from. And... Um, you know, a couple of the members, I had a game out there and they said, ah, the course is, it's not too bad at the moment. It's a little scratchy, but I'm thinking this is pure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is really, really good. I mean, it's not tournament quality, but it's still really very good for a private golf course and any course, to be honest. So I think we're a little bit spoiled down here. And I mean, I've, you know, Royal Melbourne's just around the corner and made a mind's a member. So 
I've had a couple of games there. I played Metro, played the National the other day. It's just, I'm just trying to tick everyone off the box at the moment. Do you have a favourite course, Nick, amongst all the Sandbelt courses, or is it a bit asking you which one of your kids you love the most? <laughs> oh, definitely the oldest. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, well, to be honest, you know, I've always had a real soft spot for, for Metropolitan. Uh, it launched my career, but I, I was – so I love that place. Um, but I was fortunate to play the entire Royal Melbourne West the other day. I've played the composite, obviously, in tournaments. And I had played the East, but I'd never seen those holes across the road, which are you know, four holes out there, which you just don't see unless you're able to play the entire West course. And for me, hands down, the Royal Melbourne West is, is the number one course uh, in the country. It's just phenomenal. I'll talk to you about the President's Cup because you've been a, a President's Cup rep in your great career. What's the quickest greens that you've putted on? What was the official quickest reading that you had when you were at Royal Melbourne? Oh, at Royal Melbourne? Yeah. Um, well, I remember playing the, I'm thinking uh, it was the Heineken um, in the mid-2000s sometime. And I, I remember it because I lost in a playoff to Craig Parry. He, he beat me mm. that uh, that week. But, you know, those were some of the quickest greens I've ever putted on. Just lightning. Metropolitan has some, I played the match play there and it was just pure one year. And obviously the Aussie Open. I think, you know, globally, uh, I've almost got to go with Augusta, not not because of the speed of the greens, more the slopes. I mean, Royal Melbourne and them are, are just as quick, but the slopes there are just so much more severe, so um, it can get out of control at that place. I think you played Augusta four times. Mm-hmm. Is the story true that um, you stood on the 15th tee and your caddy said, well, we're just treating this as a genuine three-shotter, and you said, I'm playing at Augusta, I'm playing in the Masters, I've been dreaming of having a crack at this ever since I was hitting golf balls. Is that right? It is true, yeah. I mean, the funny thing was we're in the practice rounds playing the hole. And, and for me, Augusta is a tough golf course because it's so long. It actually suits a left-handed golfer uh, because of the way you have to shape the ball around there. But it also suits a long-hitting left-hander, not a short-hitting left-hander like myself. And we were on the 15th in the practice round and we're standing there. I think I had three or five wood you know, in and we're going, well, how, how are we going to hold this green with this club? There, there's really no chance to do it. So let's lay up, put ourselves in a good position, trust your wedge game. and No problem. Had the game plan all set up. And first round of the tournament, this is in 2005, I'm standing on the hill. The sun's sort of setting in the background. It's one of those one of those views that you've seen, you know, for I'd watched for 20 years, basically growing up as a kid. And my caddy says, okay, here's your seven iron. We're just going to lay it up down the left. I said, mate, I've been dreaming about this shot my whole life. I'm just going for it. He says, you can't. I mean, you know it's dead long. You can't be sure. He said, I don't care. I just have to hit the shot. <laughs> what happened? Was it a watery grave? No, I knocked it over the back and, oh, right. and ended up just scrambling to make par. It was a poor decision, but I you know, I still don't regret it. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough shot from the back of 15, but oh, there are yeah. so many tough shots at that wonderful golf course. How do you divorce yourself, Nick, from the romanticism of the place? Because obviously when you play Augusta, I think if I was to walk onto Augusta, and I've never done it, but it would be something that would be mind-blowing to me just to walk onto the golf course. But it's your job, your profession. How do you divorce yourself from all of the emotion and just get down to business? It, it is tough. I mean, the first time I went there was, uh, yeah, 2005, and, and I actually arrived the weekend before, and I kind of got all that deer in headlights type feeling out of my system. Like I, I walked straight to the 10th tee and I thought, I'm walking the back nine. I just got to see it. And sure enough, you know, I walked down like, oh, wow, look at this shot. I, I remember this from that year and so on and so forth. And my favorite place on that golf course is the 12th green, yeah. 13th tee, because spectators can't get there. They have to wait behind the 12th tee. The only people allowed over there are really are members and people that play the tournament. So it's a really special place. And I love just sitting behind there and kind of looking back up 13 and 
you know, imagining all the great players that have come through. But if you're if you're in that mindset during the tournament, you're you're going to get in trouble really quickly. And and the first tee shot there is so difficult. I mean, you know, you've got all the patrons around you, the the history of the club, the clubhouse is right there. It's just one of those tee shots in golf that you'll always remember. I, mem- I remember Tiger talking about it's one of the hardest tee shots for him as well, and mm. you know, he's obviously one of the greats. And I think most people struggle on that on that first tee. It's just a, it's an iconic place, and I'm I'm so glad I got to play it. What are the other people who is allowed in that little corner? Eleven green, twelve the par three, thirteen tee. Is Ian Baker Finch your great mate? Because mm. for a long time that was his domain in the coverage, and he used to talk about that feeling of being up in the tower there and the feeling of almost solitude in that corner of the <laughs> golf course. He said it was just a magical place. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they probably hire a. Uh, hide a security guard and a little cameraman in the bushes back there somewhere as well, but you can never see them. And that's the, that's the mystique of Augusta. I mean, they do things there like no other tournament in the world. I remember one year, I think a restroom uh, behind maybe the seventh tee got destroyed in a, in a storm that came through. And the next day it was still, they basically rebuilt it brand new and you wouldn't known, wouldn't have known that the restroom was absolutely destroyed. They just, they have a budget and a and a mind that uh, is like no other, and they they do things to the beat of their own drum, and it's just an amazing golf tournament, and that's why everyone loves it. How did you go at twelve over the years that you played there? Because we've seen what happened. We saw what happened with Jordan Spieth a couple of years ago. We saw what happened this year that led to Tiger's victory. Mm. It's an amazing golf hole. It is, uh, and the funny thing is, when people ask me about that, I say, well, for me, it's the easiest hole on the golf course, yeah. and the reason being is because I'm left-handed, because mm. I aim middle of the green, and if I pull it, I'm long right, and if I push it, I'm short left. Not a difficult hole for a lefty. For a right-hander, it's an absolute nightmare, as we saw this year um, you know, with everyone coming down the stretch. If you have any nerves, you're going to pull it left uh, as a right-hander, you're long left, and you're dead. You block it short right, and you're dead as well, so it's... Uh, it's the perfect hole for a left-hander. I just wish there were more like that on the golf course. <laughs> yeah. So did you burn the midnight oil like everybody else did to watch that remarkable last day? I actually didn't. No, I you know I saw the tea times come out and I thought, oh, I'm tired already. I've got a couple of things on uh, that day. I had to do something. So I thought, no, I'll, uh, I'll, w- I'll wake up and maybe watch the replay. And then when I saw Tiger's name at the top, I thought, wow, I mean, that must have been pretty special to watch live. Is it one of the more phenomenal stories in your time in golf to be able to come back and to capture that title again? It is. I mean, you know, after everything that happened during that period of time in, what was it, uh, about 10 years ago, I think when he probably hit the fire hydrant Mm. and all the uh, commotion that happened after that, uh, people would ask me, well, you know, do you think he's going to come back, win a major? And I mean, 90% of the time I would almost think, well, he hasn't got a chance, but there was always that little bit in my mind that thought, this is Tiger Woods, anything's possible. Did I think he'd win a major again? No, I didn't. I thought mm-hmm. he'd win a couple of regular tournaments, but now, you know, you watch him swing and play, and it's almost as though he's swinging it better than he ever has. And I always remember a comment uh, David Duvall said a while back. He said, um, you know, all these young guys coming through, they're a, they're a product of the Tiger era, basically, because he you know, hit the ball so far and they're all physical and they're training and working hard. And some of them used to say, gee, I wish I could have played against Tiger in his prime. And Duval said, the hell you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, he just wiped the floor with you. Well, it was just, it was a matter of who was going to finish second. That was the mindset of a lot of the players at the time. And it was criticised that people would go out with that mindset. But it was a simple fact that when he was at the peak of his powers... If he played anywhere near his best, he was going to lap the field. Mm, absolutely. I mean, mentally, he was you know, tougher than anyone else. Physically, he was better than anyone else. So you put those two together, 
and it equates to 10, 12, 15 shot victories. And then if he had his B grade game, he'd still win, you know, by only one or two, but he mm. just found a way. And his most underrated asset, maybe it's probably more realized now, was his short game during that time because he won so many tournaments not hitting the ball that well. But his mind and his short game got him through so many uh, tough situations. He'll be coming back to this fair city um, later in the year for the President's Cup. And, of course, uh, I think it was in this fair city where basically it all blew up in the first place. (laughs) So I'm not sure what his memories of Melbourne are. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was actually back in Florida. We lived in the same uh, housing estate, funnily enough, in in Orlando. And and all of a sudden there was these helicopters um, over the over the community. I'm thinking, what's going on here? And someone said, oh, there's a big kerfuffle with Tiger. And I thought, oh, okay, well, wonder what's happened. And it almost came out of the blue from a player's perspective. We, we didn't really know what was going on. I mean, mm. it's, uh, and to do what he did for that amount of time, it was, it's, I don't know how he hit it all. Do you know him to any great degree? Not really, no, only just from the golf course. Funnily enough, my wife and I were very friendly with his ex-wife, Elon, and, mm. um, and she's, she's doing great now. I mean, she's moved on with her life and, and, and she was really cool through that whole process because, and it was really for the kids. I mean, I think she could have, you know, been a bit more outspoken and, and possibly, you know, made things very difficult for him. But she, you know, she held her head up high, was all class. And, uh, and it's a great thing because he's a, he's a wonderful father and an amazing golfer, but, you know, possibly just not the best husband in the world. <laughs> you and Tiger have an amazing link because your name is often mentioned in the same breath as Tiger because of those match play victories mm. that you had over him. Is that still one of the proudest feathers in your cap that you were able to do that? Because I think, are you still the only man who's beaten him more than once in match play? Mm. Yeah, I still am, which is always nice. I'm waiting for that other guy, you know, <laughs> someone to also pip him as well. But uh, it's a nice, it's funny. It's, it's probably what I get more recognised for. Oh, you're the guy that beat Tiger. I don't know your name, but you're, you know, you beat him twice. So, mm. uh, especially in the States, obviously in Australia, it's a little different, but... It, there's plenty of worse things to be, you know, known for. <laughs> and the good news I always tell people was, well, you know, I beat him when he was number one, which was pretty cool. I mean, he went through a pretty bad patch there for a while where he wasn't that great. But um, uh, it's something, yeah, I'll always remember and cherish. And, and match play is just a different animal. I mean, mm. it's just 18 holes. Anyone can win. And the first time I didn't think too much of it, but the second time I knew, you know, it, w- it was a pretty big deal and I was uh, thankful to get through. We touched on, Nick, that air of invincibility that Tiger had when he was at the peak of his powers. What's it like going head-to-head in that situation with him? Does he try and steer you down? Does he try <laughs> the mind games along the way, especially when he's in a position where he may lose the match? He might have, but I, I really... Uh, and that, I think one of the advantages of being an Aussie, especially playing in America, is we just really don't care over there, <laughs> uh, in match play especially. And I learned early on when I played him the first time that I wasn't going to be sucked in by this aura that he has. I mean, I stood on the first tee in La Costa, and um, my caddy and I, we, we had a theory, funnily enough, on, on how to play him. Uh, our theory that we came up with, um, all good in theory, obviously, was we can't get behind to this guy because if he gets a lead, he is the ultimate front runner. He's only ever won a major until the Masters just recently, mm. uh, either leading or being tied to, for the lead going into the last round. He never won coming from behind. So if he gets the lead, we're kind of done. And, uh, and on the first tee, there's thousands of people around there and he cracks this drive off and the crowd's just going nuts. And I look out over my caddy and he's got his mouth open looking at the trajectory of the flight of the ball. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, okay, yeah, that was pretty impressive. Uh, I'm going to make a point not to watch him tee off. For the, for the rest of that day, I faced the other way. I was looking at the crowd as he mm. was teeing off. So I really wasn't aware of what he was doing. 
on the greens and around the greens. Well, then I was. But that first hole, funnily enough, I had an eight-foot putt for par on the first hole to halve the hole. And my caddy's behind me, and he says to me, mate, this is for the match right here. <laughs> wow. It was a big call. Yeah. So, uh, but he knew that would really focus my mind, and, and I knocked it in. Uh, then I birdied the next two. I was two up after three, and I just kept the lead all day, and away we went. And uh, Same thing happened in the second match. I just really didn't pay much attention to him, uh, got an early lead, and kind of hung on. When we sit in the commentary box, we often talk about the fact that if you've got a, a long hitter and a, a shorter hitter, don't get into a driving contest. Have mm-hmm. the mindset that you're not in a driving contest. Is that just the line that the commentators use, or is that something that you really have to convince yourself that you see that booming drive going off the first mm-hmm. tee and – the natural inclination is I better find about 10 more if I can. <laughs> I was fortunate and then I, I never got sucked into that mentality because I knew my capabilities. I mean, if I really stepped on one, I might get another five yards and that's mm. not going to make much difference. Funnily enough, in match play, I think one of the reasons I was so successful is because I was a short hitter. Mm. And my second shots into a green, I was always playing first. So I was able to apply the pressure, hit a good shot. I was very steady. My opponents knew I wasn't going to make too many mistakes. And by the end of it, they're going, man, this guy, he just keeps knocking it in there. And then they may have felt the pressure and then hit poor shots themselves. So a little secret of my success is that I was actually a shorter hitter. And, you know, for those pennant players out there uh, that are listening, um, you know, maybe lay one up short of your opponent when you're playing an ex-pennant match and uh, and just sort of squeeze one in there, uh, you know, so puts uh, them in two minds. Very good advice, and it served you well (laughs) over your career. And we're going to go back over your career and find out where it all began when we come back on the other side of the break. Nick O'Hearn is my guest. Good to have him with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More coming up with Nick after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Nick O'Hearn on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Nick, it all began on the other side of the country from where we sit now. You're a WA boy. Tell us about uh, the early days and where you got your love of golf from. Well, it came from my, my, my dad, really. He he was a very good sportsman growing up, played uh, a lot of different sports, tennis, baseball, golf, soccer, and so I sort of followed in his footsteps. Funnily enough, I was better at tennis and baseball than I was golf. The lowest handicap I ended up getting down to as an amateur was two when I was 16, and I turned pro when I was 19. I did a traineeship, and I was off a four handicap, so wow. <laughs> it's, it's not setting the world on fire, that's for sure. I I didn't come through these golf programs, you know, which a lot of the amateur golf golfers are coming through now. I kind of came in the back door through the trainee pro route. So I, um, I uh, figured it out in my early 20s. You know, when I was 19, I did a three-year course. 22, I finished, and I, I was still bro- struggling to break 80. Um, but I got my, uh, my pro card, so to speak, and I thought, I've got to find a way. I've got to figure this out. And, and luckily, uh, it all started uh, – I. My wife and I, we got married young. I was 22. She was 21. And I think at about the age of 23, 24, she said, you know, um, you, you can't keep going on like this. We need to figure out what your plan is for golf. Do you want to play or do you just want to become a teaching pro? So at that point, we made a, a three-year plan. And it's funny what happens when you set a plan in motion. It's like a business plan. You know, you, you, you lay down everything you want to do. And when you have some direction and you have some focus and purpose, uh, things just fall into place. And a couple of the things that we really needed, I needed to, 
I needed to find a good golf coach. I hadn't really found someone that I connected with. Um, and then a guy by the name of Neil Simpson came into my life. He was the pro at Mount Lawley, which was my club back in Perth. And with my first lesson with Neil, he actually looked at me and he said, after watching me hit a few balls, he said, uh, you're a pro? <laughs> wasn't quite inspiring stuff, you know, but uh, I said, yeah, I am. I know I'm, uh, I don't look like much, but I, I work hard and I'm pretty sure I can give this, go, this, this, this game a run. So he took me on, which was awesome. And then at the same time, I also knew I needed to find a, a good a guy that would help me with my mental game, the sports psychologist. So my wife rang up, funnily enough, the West Coast Eagles and said, uh, who's the sports psych? And they said, oh, Neil McLean, he's at the UWA. So I booked an appointment with Neil. And we started off on that path of, of building a, a mental foundation that I could work off. So between the two Neils, I call them the two Neils, uh, things just started pro- to, to progress and I just got better and better and better from there. And that was at a time where the Australian golf tour was very strong. I remember um, we were doing PGA Tour productions and we'd do a dozen events over the summer. It was a really strong period of Australian golf at that time and the competition was exceptional. It was world-class. It was. I mean, I grew up watching, well, when I say grow up in my late teens, you know, it was Norman obviously dominating the world tours. And then locally you had guys like uh, Ozzy Moore and Wayne Grady, Ian Baker Finch, Craig Parry was just getting going. Uh, Peter Senior. I mean, Pete's funnily enough, the guy, I used a long left-handed putter my whole career. And I saw this uh, sort of short, overweight kind of guy just, um, you know, wielding this thing. I'm thinking, well, wow, maybe I'll give that a try because I'm putting kind of bad at the moment. And I didn't have the yips, but I wasn't putting great. And he's the reason I started using the long putter. So to watch those guys growing up, I was just completely inspired. You know, you had the Masters every year at Huntingdale. The Aussie mm-hmm. Open would, would rotate and the PGA and all these other events, as you say, throughout the country. And it was just a great era to grow up in Australia playing golf. Unfortunately, I wasn't good enough at the time, but I figured, well, this is what I want to do. I'll, I'll figure it out. I often recall when we talk about the Masters, the day that Norman and Faldo went head to head and mm. the sight of that 14th at Huntingdale, 550 yards or something like that, 550 metres, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. And it was practically lined that day. They were the halcyon days. There were people running through bunkers to get a glimpse of Greg as he came up the 18th. People look at Australian golf these days and they don't realise how big it was back 20-odd years ago. Mm, No, it was amazing. I mean, the first time I played with Greg was at his tournament, the the Greg Norman Holden International, it was called at the time. And we were at the Australian Golf Club, and this was back in 98, and I had him for the third round. And we were running about 20th. You know, we weren't leading, but um, funnily enough, I had a I had a guy in my bag that I just picked up that week as a caddy. My wife usually was caddying at that time, but she was in a temp job back home. Mm. So uh, I rang my caddy up saying, hey, mate, we're off at uh, you know 10.30 in the morning. And he said, who are we playing with? And I said, it's Greg Norman. This is you know, a dream. And he goes, oh, geez, I'm not coming. I can't, I can't make it. I feel sick already. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I convinced him to come and we get to the first tee there. And I looked down that fairway and you're right, it was 10 deep on both sides. Mm. And for that first nine holes, he played some of the most amazing golf I've ever seen. I think he lipped out on the ninth hole to shoot 30 on the front nine. It was inspiring. I mean, the crowd were going nuts. I was just a just sitting there, you know, watching this. I had the front row seat. It was just amazing. He shot 64 that day to move from 20th to second. Mm. And then the following day, he beat uh, Ola Thabal, uh, you know, on the last hole. It was just uh, – and that era, you know, in the mid to late 90s, early 90s even, it was just phenomenal stuff. Speaking of your wife catting, something's just popped into my mind, and you can confirm whether this is mm. true. I think it was at, was at Metro. She was caddying for you, and 
you decided that you'd empty the golf bag because it was a bit heavy for her. What happened? Yeah, that was the third round of the Australian Open. So funnily enough, that, that, that was the time that they launched my career. It was 97, and I'd pre-qualified on the Monday before to get into the tournament. Carried my own bag on the Thursday because, um, you know, my wife was still working, and she said, well, you know, if you play all right, I might come over. So funnily enough, I shot like 67 the first day. So she hopped on the red eye. And Thursday we come out and I shoot 66 Friday. Uh, so I'm leading the golf tournament. And, you know, out of nowhere on the back page, it was Nico Who basically on the on the Herald. Mm. And then um, on the Saturday, Melbourne being Melbourne, I thought, oh, weather looks pretty good. No problem. It's my wife catting. I better empty the bag because, you know, she's just had a pretty tough, uh, tough couple of days carrying the bag and working. And then sure enough, the thunderstorms come in and we've got no wet weather gear, no umbrella. <laughs> Nothing, and we're on like the seventh or the eighth hole at Metro. I'm playing with Lee Westwood. It's pouring with rain. We're just getting wet. I mean, the commentators must have thought, "Gee, either this guy's really tough and he loves playing in the rain, or he's forgotten everything." <laughs> Fortunately, it was one of those uh, thunderstorms, so they blew the siren, and before we got too drenched, uh, we walked back into the clubhouse, and I was able to restock the bag. So that launched the career in uh, in your eyes. Uh, that was the beginning of what was a very successful career. What do you think of when I say the name Coolum? Because it mm. must have a very special place in your heart. Two victories, mm-hmm. and both of them coming at that great golf course. Yeah, if if we could have played Coolum every week of the year, I'd be the number one golfer in the world, hands down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that it was just such a special place for me. I had my first win there on tour in '99. And then I won in 2006 at the PGA. But even other than those wins, I came close a number of other times. It just, the golf course set up perfectly for me off the tee. I hit driver everywhere, whereas most people are hitting irons on a lot of places. So length wasn't a factor. And I could hit this little low running cut for a lefty, um, which worked really well around that golf course. And the whole atmosphere to the event, you know, it was usually, I think, the last tournament of the year. Yep. And they had the village square and the whole... Don't forget uh, the beach party. The beach party, yeah. On the Saturday right. night. On the Saturday night. Yeah. How good was that? <laughs> it was just, everyone just had a great time. And I think maybe looking back, I thought, well, maybe I should have treated every uh, tournament as a party, basically, <laughs> because I played so well there. So, yeah, it was it was such a, an amazing place. And I, I wish it was still going, but, you know, obviously things happen and, and, yeah. and times change. But uh, it's it's a very special place in my career. And it's funnily enough, you talk about... It's my first win. is also the place I made my first cut in a pro tournament, which was in 96, I think, at the Coolum Classics. So, mm. Yeah, great place. Are you saddened by what's happened? Because it's been well documented that the golf course has been through a lot of different things with um, Clive Palmer's ownership and became a dinosaur park there for a while. For a championship golf course, which was a great test of golf, it must sadden the people who had an affinity with that place. What's ensued over the years? Yeah, I think if you talk to most players, they'll go, oh, Coolum was just fantastic. We yeah. love it. And, and I mean, we're, we're at Royal Pines now for the PGA, and they're trying to create a similar feel. And, and I love Royal Pines. I think it's a great venue, but it's, Coolum was special. It was unique. And, uh, and the people there and, and you know, just the, the surrounding uh, communities, they just got so involved up there. The whole Sunshine Coast area loved it. Mm. And, it, yeah, it's a real pity what's happened. So um, hopefully you know, someone can... So we can rebuild it again, and, and, and we may get back there one year. You never know. We'll see. And you touched on the party atmosphere of the Coolum Classic, last event of the year. It was a really just a feel-good week, and everybody enjoyed it. But you also won the PGA there, and mm. that's one of the big championships, one of the story championships in this country. I'm sure that was one of your crowning glories. 
It was. I mean, I as a PGA member growing up, I came through the, the trainee system, so it was really dear to my heart. I mean, the, the, the two tournaments I always wanted to win in Australia was the Open, because it's our national title, and the PGA Championship. Not that I didn't want to win the Masters, but, um, you know, the PGA was very special to me because it represents all the, the PGA members throughout the country, which I've been a part of for oh, almost 30 years now. So... Um, it was a very roller coaster golf tournament for me, that one, because I was playing so well. And the last day was just a mixture of emotions. I, um, I had my worst moment on the 72nd hole by missing a three-foot putt to win the tournament. And then I had my best moment of holding a bunker shot about an hour later in the fourth playoff hole. So you talk about you know, the highs and lows of golf. It was all, all encapsulated in one day. And, and the party we had that night at the Village Square was pretty cool too. <laughs> a lot of golfers, Nick, when they play a career shot, and you ask them about it afterwards, they say, I just knew that I was going to hole it. Did you stand in that bunker thinking that you might hole that shot? I I had a feeling, but I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I knew. I just got in there and I thought, oh, yeah, I quite fancy this. I like this. Let's let's get this as close as possible. If it goes in, great. If it doesn't. It came out a little hotter than I wanted. It was moving a bit fast, but it was going straight for the flag. And I thought, halfway there, I thought, it's in. And I thought, if this misses, well, then I'm just not meant to win this golf tournament. And sure enough, it hit the flag, popped in and... And the rest is history, so they say. So, in a way, I'm almost glad I missed the three-footer on the 72nd hole because mm. all that drama would never have unfolded. And I'm sure the sponsors got a kick out of an extra hour coverage on the TV and everything because I, I believe they just kept going through the news, uh, which is very rare in this country. And I just remember the crowds that day on 18 because we kept playing the 18th hole over and over again four times. And they were just you know, 20, 30 deep. It was so good to see all the people out there supporting the event. And finally, you spoke about the importance of that win, being a PGA member. Did you take a moment when they gave you the Joe Kirkwood Cup just to have a look at the names that had preceded you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, you know, an honour roll of, of all the legends uh, here in Australian golf and also some international players as well. I mean, just the, the history there, you see you know, Kel Nagel's name on there a number of mm-hmm. times and all the, all the greats of Australian golf looking back. And, I mean, I can't name them all, but there's just uh, – it's one of those special things you think, well, they can't take my name off this. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and there were a few other special moments, including one at a US Open Championship, and we might talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Hope you're enjoying the chat with Nick O'Hearn on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It is a great chat that we're having with Nick O'Hearn on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Nick, we've spoken about those great moments. I'm sure that the US Open Championship, the Jeff Ogilvie one, also holds a special place in your heart because it was your best finish in a major championship. It was, yeah. It, you know, funny, I just caught up with uh, Jeff this morning and uh, we were chatting about different stuff and, and that US Open, funnily enough, it's a, quite a coincidence. But yeah, it was back in 2006. I think that was probably my best year out on tour. I was I was playing really well all over the world and... and you know, to, to watch the events unfold that day on that Sunday was was something unique because going going into that last round, funnily enough, I I was running about twenty fifth or something like that at, at nine over par, which you know you think nine over par, but I'm twenty fifth. It's still doing all right. I think one over par was leading, mm. and my caddy and, and I spoke before the round, and he said, "We're not out of this." And I said, um, we're, "We're a long way back. It's the U.S. Open. I'm going to have to shoot well under." And he said, "If you can get it to five over par." 
I reckon you're a chance. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. But you know, I'm nine over par already, right? And this is, <laughs> this is Sunday of the US Open. So it was quite funny. After nine holes, I'm five over par. I'm four under through nine. And mm. I'm just playing lights out. I mean, it was just one of those days where I'm thinking, wow. And the leaders are just about to tee off. And we kind of got that mindset. Okay, well, you know, if we can just keep going and grinding this out, we, we, we may be a chance. And, and then in the end, I shot three over the back, um, you know, the US Open being what it is. But I shot uh, 69 for the day, which was pretty good. Probably and nobody have... else was getting near that nobody, score, really. Yeah, exactly. Nobody, you know, I, maybe one other guy shot one under par for the day. I think I made a bogey on 18 because I was trying to make birdie, thinking, well, if I birdie the last, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get in a playoff or something. And I finished the tournament. Knew I wasn't going to win, but I hung around because I saw Jeff was doing well. And then he finished five over, and then everything just unfolded after that. And I saw him, I think, in the scorers or in the locker room. And I said, mate, I think you're a chance here. And he says, oh, I don't, don't think so. And anyway, it just, I think Hand, H- Padraig Harrington might have made double on the last. Monty might have made a double. And then Phil did what he did. And yeah. all of a sudden, Jeff's holding the trophy. And you go, wow, this is really cool. So, they needed, I think, bogey to tie to mm. force a playoff. And yeah. they all made doubles. Yeah. It was brutal. 69 on that day, is that one of your greatest rounds? It was probably. I mean, I, for me, unfortunately, I can't remember the back nine because I thought I had a chance. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, 69 at the US Open in those conditions when five over wins is, is, a, is a really special score. And, I mean, I remember playing Oakmont the following year, I think it was, and I shot 15 over par for the four rounds and we're standing on the 72nd hole. And my caddy says to me, Nick, you know, you've played pretty well today, uh, this week. I said, yeah, I have. He says, you're 15 over par. Yeah. I said, I know. And 15 over finished probably 22nd or 23rd. So that's how tough the US Opens were back then. Um, now, I mean, I'm thinking, what was it the other day that won 13 under? So mm. the, the USGA are always having a battle to get the golf courses right. Um, sometimes they're a little not easy or sometimes they're hard and too hard and difficult and it's just a constant battle with those guys, so I'm, I'm sure they'll figure it out one year. I actually quite enjoyed Pebble this year. I thought they, they did a great job with the course setup. Do you think it should be that way, Nick, for a national championship, that they should put it on the edge of almost unplayable at various times? Mm-hmm. Is that the way a national championship should be? There's, there's different opinions to that. I always enjoyed the US Open for that fact because it was not impossible, but it was borderline mm. and sometimes it went over too far obviously maybe Shinnecock a number of years ago and a couple of instances since where they've tiptoed a little too too close to that line but I love the fact that it's going to be difficult because half the field as soon as they get off to that that start where they just can't recover from late it's not that they give up but they're like oh gosh really I mean I've got to put up with this for another 18 holes or 36 holes so the mentally strong guys rise to the top. And for me, that was one of my assets throughout my career was I was able to forget about all that stuff and just play my own game. So I, when par was a good score, they were the tournaments generally that I did well in. But it must have been a magical moment to be recognised in two President's Cup teams. Tell us what that experience was like. Very unique because, as you say, golf is such a, an individual pursuit. And then when you put, you're involved with a team uh, the pressure becomes different. It's a very bizarre feeling. I mean, the most nervous I've ever been on a golf course was my first tee shot at the 2005 President's Cup uh, in Washington, D.C. I was playing an alternate shot format with Tim Clark, the South African golfer who you remember. Mm. And we're deciding on the range who's going to take the odd holes, who's going to take the evens, because that's the way you, you, know, you have to alternate between your tee shots. And in the end, we go, okay, I'll take odds, Tim, you take evens. No worries. And I didn't think much about it. I'm walking to the first tee 
and it kind of dawns on me, hang on, I've got the first tee shot there. And then we walk up there and there's uh, Gary Player, my captain, who, you know, is one of the legends of the game. And then Jack Nicholas, who I'd idolized my whole career uh, up to that point. Uh, he's standing next to him. Next to them is Presidents Bill Clinton and George Bush Senior. And I'm standing there thinking, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> and all of a sudden my knees start shaking and the blood's, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to hit this shot. I look down the fairway and all of a sudden it looks a lot narrower than what it should do. And Fortunately, I was able to compose, my, uh, compose myself and, and hit a good tee shot. But that sort of a pressure, that feeling is, is something you don't experience, I think, when you're just playing for yourself. Mm. And because in that team environment, you tend to feel really bad when you hit a bad shot. Yeah. If you're playing in a foursomes or an alternate or, or whatever, four ball. But the other guy kind of thinks, oh, that's okay. You know, that's, we'll, we'll figure it out. But yourself, you just feel horrible about it. And if you lose a match, you, you know, you kind of go back with your head between your legs going, sorry, guys, I gave it everything. And they go, yeah, no problem. It's all good. But you just feel worse for it. Whereas if it's just yourself in a tournament, you can kind of handle it. So um, it's a very unique format. And I don't think the President's Cup will, you know, obviously they have that history or that cachet that the, the Ryder Cup does. I hope, I really hope the international team can win this year because yeah. we need to i mean we yeah. really need to get a a, a a a win on the board so royal melbourne is the perfect venue uh for the international team um the captain's picks i think will be huge in that regard i think you want guys that know how to play sandbelt courses so am i tipping myself towards australian players possibly yes mm. i mean i Hands down, I almost have the Royal Melbourne pennant team in there, you know, because <laughs> you know, they know that course like the back of their hands. So that's obviously won't happen, but 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 we'll see how it all fares because the Americans are going to have a very very strong team. So um, mm. it'll be great to watch. Well, let's hope that we get some joy at the Presidents Cup later in the year, as you said, because really for the the sake of the competition, it's a great competition, but it needs the international team to perform well, and it hopefully does. we'll get to see that. We're just about out of time, Nick, but still a couple of things I want to mention to you, and the fact is uh, you're an author as well, so mm. we'll touch on that when we come back in our final segment with Nick O'Hearn on the other side of the break. Hope you're enjoying This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Nick O'Hearn on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Nick, I teased it before the break. You are an author. What was the book that you penned? So it's called Tour Mentality, Inside the Mind of a Tour Pro, which can be a scary place at times. <laughs> but uh, it's been out a couple of years now, almost three years actually. Um, and it wasn't something I planned on. It came about by chance. I was back in Florida playing a social round with mates and um, this one particular guy was struggling with his game. And I said, oh, you know, why don't you just focus on this rather than all the technical stuff going on? And he did, and he started playing well. So we started talking about the mental side of golf and how important it was. And, and he said to me, you know, you should write a book on all this stuff. And I said, ah, there are plenty of good mental game books out there already. And he said, yeah, but they're all written by sports psychologists. They're not written by guys that have been there and done it. So the more I thought about it, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I put together a few pages for my mates to say, hey, work on this stuff. And then from that, it turned into 10 pages, then 20 and 30, and, and the book just kind of evolved. So... It's been fun. I mean, it's told through stories in my career about certain situations that I get into uh, and how I handle those. And it's some, so it's a little autobiographical in a sense. 
And I think for the average golfer out there, they just get a kick out of the fact that, well, we feel exactly the same way they do, maybe just at a different level, you know, first tee nerves and stuff. For me, it was at the President's Cup. For them, mm. it might be at their Saturday club, uh, comp, uh, you know, on the weekend. So, but you handle it exactly the same way. So it's, it's touched a nice uh, chord, I guess, with the golfing public out there, and it's been well received. So I guess the perception is if you're talking about a golf book um, from a pro talking about the psychology, that it's aimed at the low handicappers or even pros, but this is a book for everyone who picks up a golf club. It is for everyone, yeah, from a, from a pro. I mean, I've had a number of pros come up to me and say, I loved your book, and I'm working on some stuff, to the 27 handicappers, to the people who don't have handicaps going, oh, this is great. It gives me something to think of when I go out on the golf course so um and again my intention in the beginning wasn't to to do that but it just kind of uh, evolved that way and I'm, I'm now thinking oh maybe i should write another one and i'm gonna i think i will it's gonna be angled a little bit more at the details of the game and possibly more for the uh, for the elite guys and things like that but i don't know yet whereas this is a this is a nice broad brush over everything i think and um it's got some good stories in it too which is always fun What's the name of the book, if uh, anyone wants to get hold of it? Tour Mentality, right Inside the Mind of a Tour Pro. So you just go to Amazon and it's on that. Uh, the great thing about your sport is that you can keep playing it. Do you mm. still, when you get out there and you chase the little white ball around, do you still have a passion for the game, even though you're not playing for a living anymore as such? I do. I mean, I love golf. Um, after I stopped playing full-time about five years ago and... I did some other things, and then after a couple of years, I thought, no, I've got to get back into golf. This is what I love and what I do. So I've started mentoring up-and-coming players, uh, young pros, elite amateurs, and that's kind of turned into I'm helping out actually anyone now that wants to uh, you know, contact me, and, um, and I can help them with their games. So I tend to work on very non-technical things. So for a lot of players, they might already have their own coaches, but I help them with the mental game, the strategic, and all that sort of stuff. So... And that's what really fascinates me about the game. Every time I go out and play, I, I'm almost tinkering around with, okay, if I do this or I think about that, how will that affect me? And and the fun part about it for me is I still play the Aussie events at the end of the year, like the Aussie Open, the PGA, mm. and those I'm going to be playing those again. And I get to put all those sorts of things into practice again that I that I really should focus on that I that I haven't because all I do is play a social round of golf once a week now and just have a bit of fun. So, but my passion for the game hasn't diminished. I love the competition. Um, it was more the travel, you know, I was over being on the road 25, 30 weeks of the year and I had a young family and I, I stopped because I really wanted to watch the kids grow up and stay home more. So. And just finally, is there a fraternity amongst left-handed golfers uh, <laughs> standing on the wrong side of the ball or what we consider to be the wrong side of the ball? You consider it to be the right side. Is there, is there just that little bit of a, a link between all the lefties out there? Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, we, I'm always by myself on that left-hand side of the tee because that's where we put our bag in, in the pro events. Um, and when another guy like a Richard Green or a Phil Mickelson comes over and he's standing next to you, you can have a bit of a chat, which is always nice. Usually it's just me and my caddy. So I think uh, at the amateur level, yeah, sure, they have all these you know, left-handed golfers associations and things like that. But at the pro pro level, we, we don't pay much too much attention to it, I don't think. But uh, uh, it's funny. I don't see myself as a lefty as well I, if i watch my swing on video i go oh that's kind of weird and i have to flip it to a, in a mirror to see it right-handed to be honest i wish i'd have done it years ago <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good note to end because i've just realized that you've got something in common with one of the world's great sports people rafael nadal because mm. he's a left-handed tennis player as we know and writes right-handed so there you go not only are you forever linked with tiger woods in the sentence you can be linked with <laughs> rafa now 
It's been good to sit down and talk to you, Nick, and we wish you well. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. Nick O'Hearn joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, and we will be back with another great of Australian sport. Same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.